Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 3, Episode 7. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I will be sharing some thoughts on how to get a deal completed by year-end if you only have a few months and need to accelerate the timeline. How do you cut 20-25% to of the time out of a typical M&A transaction? I'll also share some thoughts on the resurgence of casual dining, sales and margins in franchise locations, and franchisors' approval processes. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the Boiler Room. Hey, so thanks so much for being here today. It's interesting. It's been a a little bit of a crazy summer as I talk with you here towards uh, the end of July, 1st of August of 2021. Our deal flow, man, continues to be absolutely crazy. And it's it's made it such such as this podcast and the webinars that we do have gotten a little bit just for the temporary time being, have gotten a little bit delayed. So my apologies. I had someone who is a uh, you know big franchisee out on the West Coast, maybe 100 units or so, tell me yesterday that they missed the last episode of the podcast. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, if you're hearing this, I want you to know that you're my motivation to do this today. And I'm sorry to those of you who have faithfully listened that maybe there's a couple of weeks here where I'm delayed in getting this podcast out. It's been because we're currently, I guess our company closed five deals last a week and a half ago we've got five more deals that are going to close next week and so uh, th- that's that's a that's a lot you know and I'll talk a little bit about kind of some of that that right now maybe but when you're doing a restaurant deal typically you know the last couple of weeks as you might surmise are always kind of a fire drill as they're looking to get things closed with closing statements and consents and landlord assignments and franchisor approval and final financing and all the things that have to happen to to get a deal closed and then, you know, it's kind of like this hurry up and wait at times. Uh, many of you are familiar with that. Being in the military at one point in my life, you know, anyone who's in the military understands that, the idea of hurrying up, hurrying up to wait. So that uh, when you have, four, you know, four or five of them in any one given week, it becomes a bit of a challenge. But it's a blessing to be able to have this kind of work. And it's kind of a testament to maybe what Unbridled has been doing in the marketplace and also kind of a bigger trend of M&A that's happening after this COVID world we live in with operators. As I've said in prior episodes and in webinars recently. I mean, dude, it's been a crazy environment. People have been, you know, sitting on businesses that are all of a sudden doing really well. Many of them have been doing well for almost a year now in the QSR world, right? But certainly in things like fitness and healthcare and even now in casual dining, sales and profits are starting to pick up quite substantially and and boy, isn't that a blessing and well-deserved. And if you're listening, you're one of those operators who's had a rougher go with the post-COVID fallout. My heart pours out to you, number one. And number two, I'm really thankful to see that things are getting back to normal and you're probably seeing a big surge once again in your business. And so kudos to you, man, for hanging in there. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't kill us, makes us stronger. I know for, for a lot of us, it's been a real rough go. And so kudos to you guys. But, you know, when you get these, um, when you get these deals out there and you have the pace of, of business continuing to be strong, what, what you see is a little bit of pressure on the timelines. And what's also happened in our business, as I've kind of alluded to in the past, is, and I think across the market in general, it's not 
individual to us by any means. Uh, matter of fact, uh, it, it's not individual to us at all. That uh, you, um, a lot of clients who have these businesses that are now sitting on 12 months in a row of really strong sales and profits and looking continuously at the prospect of higher capital gains taxes, um, you know, you know, uh, in the future, who knows how much and who knows when or if it'll happen. But most people are saying, at least rumbling, that, that they hope that most any, any tax changes won't happen until January 1st of 2022 or later. And if that is true, which of course that's a guess, and who the heck knows with politicians and compromising and all the things they do up there, you know, it, it, it has pushed a lot of business into this year. It's now, at, you know, as we sit in July, you know, late July, early August, we're five months till the end of the year. It typically takes for, you know, most of our clients, our average transaction soup to nuts takes about six months to close. That doesn't mean that we can't close a deal by the end of the year that starts today, you know, if, let's, if we're calling today the 1st of August, but it certainly makes it less and less likely. And you know, maybe what I'll do is, is first start off and talk a little bit about kind of what you have to do to get a deal done quickly. How about that? I don't know that I've, I've spent much time talking about this before, so I'll do that. And, you know, to, a little, little bit of, a little bit of context in most years, and this, and this depends, man. And, and, you know, COVID is one of these things that, that really put a, a monkey wrench in the, you know, in, in the normal way of doing things, right? From an M&A &A perspective too. But if you were to take the 2020 and 2021 out of the picture, and I look at my experience over 20 years in this, kind of in this business, you typically see, you know, a lumpy big start to the year in February, March, and April when people just naturally will take their P and Ls, dust them off, talk to their credit committees and their and their you know lenders, advisors, and all these you know people, family members that are close to them and their family partners, and they make maybe make a decision to sell a company or, or refinance a company, and and they and if they're going to sell a company, maybe they get their year in P and Ls the first of February, they make the decision to look at it through the month of February and first of March. Let's just say they decide to, to engage us that and, and then in that particular situation the deals close you know typically six to seven months five months later somewhere in that range of the of the end of q3 early q4 and then those kind of deals start getting and start happening in march and april and what it does is set up for a, a natural cycle of deals that close in the fourth quarter of of any given year and anyone who's in this business as a lender or a deal maker or has bought a lot of things knows that that's kind of a pretty heavy sequence on a yearly basis and then you typically you know have a series of people who decide to sell their companies or do a refinancing action in the fall i don't know why but it's a smaller lump but there is a lump of activity that hits usually in september october and november and then the rest of the business that we do is kind of people make those decisions sprinkled out throughout the balance of the year and it's more haphazard Maybe there's someone who dies in the family or a divorce, or maybe there's a circumstance that causes them to act at a given time that's not maybe as planful. Because of that typical sequencing of deals throughout a year, you're going to see naturally a bunch of closings towards the end of the year. And when there's a bunch of closings towards the end of the year, what that you know typically means is there's year-end pressure to get things done. But the year-end pressure to get things done typically is not as pronounced when there's not tax things at play, right? Like like when, when there's a change in presidency or when there's an expected tax policy that's either going to phase out or phase in in a given tax year. So when those type of events happen, and I can remember that, you know, actually, you know, when when, when Obama was coming into office too and, and George W. You know, Bush was, was, was leaving, 
you know, I can remember that kind of being a, a time when people were pausing on transactions or trying to get transactions to, to happen more quickly. So that that's, a, you know, so it's a kind of a natural time for that to happen. And as a pause right now, I'm doing this podcast and it's pretty cool. You know, I, I think most of you know, I live in Gulf Breeze, Florida, which is right around Pensacola and in between Pensacola and Destin. And right now the Blue Angels are flying by pretty sweet man if you want to get your blood pumping watch those blue angels like fly in a sequence of five or six uh, about 100 or 200 feet off the ground and and do their maneuvers it's pretty impressive you know uh, back to the discussion you know so there's urine pressure typically but it's not as big of a a pressure until you see a, a kind of a tax or a regulatory or a political change you know, generally speaking, if there's going to be a year-end closing, some buyer, some sellers actually choose because of their advice from their CPA or account, you know, or, or attorney to to close in in the following year. So if something was going to close like December fifteenth, they may otherwise decide they want to try to close it in January second, right? Because if they close January second, the taxes aren't due until at least April of the following year. And if it's a big set of proceeds and tax law isn't expected to change effectively by pushing the deal into the first couple of weeks of, of the next uh, you know, calendar year means that you can hold your money for another 15 or 16 months, you know, maybe longer before you have to pay the government. And, you know, when people are walking away with a tax bill that's going to be 15, 20 million dollars and they can put that money into something that earns a few percent interest, it's a sizable amount. So you see that that uh, dynamic a little bit. You know, of course, buyers typically aren't pushing as hard for the timelines within a calendar year as a, as a seller might. But in this particular year, we are. And some of the things that, we're, that, that you have to do right now, so if you do a deal right now, just in, in this could, you throw this in your bag of tricks for whenever you're gonna buy or sell or whenever you're gonna raise money or you're gonna lend or finance or seek equity, whatever it is, there are certain triggers that you can maybe be thinking about that would that would kind of make the timeline go faster. Some of them are creative and they, you know, they're not without their faults, but these are just ideas and I'm not endorsing any one of them. But the first thing you have is, you know, in our process, when we, we typically take three to four weeks to, to uncover the, you know, the best offers, the right offers, a handful of offers typically, sometimes less, sometimes more for a given, for a given business that's for sale or being financed. And uh, then we typically go through a, you know, kind of a two week, uh, you know, invitation management only kind of meeting. Right now they're going over Zoom where you might kind of invite two or three of the buyers to come on Zoom with the seller and answer questions and present themselves and talk about their proposal and who they are and all those things. And then and then the seller typically chooses the, the final the final person to be their buyer choice. And, you know, and, and then we kind of move off into the into the sunset and try to get the deal closed. Um, and, and which reminds me of another thing. Um, as a as a bit of an aside, I would say that those management meetings, if you're if you're like a you know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are are probably buyers or people looking potentially to get into this space. We obviously cater to a lot of northeastern based young MBA types who've gotten into the business over the last four or five years and have bought a ton of restaurants, particularly. You know those management meetings are very very um, are very very important. Those management meetings are important. And the one thing I would tell you, if you're in one of those management meetings and you get selected, is um, I, now I'm a sales guy, I'm a numbers guy, but I'm a sales guy too. And I watch these things over and over again. And I'll tell you, it is important when you hop on these management meetings, if you're going to be talking to a seller about a proposal you're giving them and why to choose you, that you talk about the seller more than you talk about yourself. 
So if you're in an hour-long management meeting and we're sitting on minute number 40 of 60 and you're still talking about who you are and your background and what you've done and all these things and who your company is, you probably spent too much time talking about yourself. You know, you want to be in a position where you talk about yourself. It's, it's the good old typical sales 101, right? You talk about yourself maybe 10 or 15 minutes, maybe at most. You want to introduce who you are. People need to know who you are and what your background is. But then you want to talk about the person and the business and the longevity that you're trying to acquire. Because everyone, at the end of the day, read the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Everyone wants to hear about themselves, don't they? They don't want to hear about you. So if you're in one of those management management meetings, and oh, by the way, if you're one of those young millennial buyers of these businesses, no offense to you if you're listening to this, but you typically probably had a silver spoon in your mouth and you uh, coddled a little bit by mom and dad, and you're used to things being about you, and you're a little problem, and, and you might be a little self-centered. You might not be naturally the type of person who wants to instead, uh, and you're younger, so you feel a need to justify yourself in front of maybe a, an operator or a seller who owns a bunch of restaurants who might be in their 60s or 70s, right? But that's maybe not the way to be. The way to be is to ask other people about themselves. Hear, seek to listen first and not talk. You know, tailor your presentation in a way that you'd want to hear it if you were going to sell something that had been so close to you in a business, like a, like a mother and dad or a, a spouse or kids over the last 30 or 40 years. Okay, did I, did I kill that? Uh, I probably I probably went too too heavy on that man, but uh, so so back to this idea of deal activity and timing. So usually we have three to four weeks of a process, and then one to two weeks of a management meeting. So let's just say that's five or six weeks. That five or six weeks typically takes up let's call it six weeks, right? To choose the right for a seller to choose the right buyer or the right you know financing partner, and you know six weeks out of a six month process. Six weeks is what one and a half months. One and a half out of six is four is one fourth, right? So that's one fourth of the time is there. We can usually compress that to four weeks, where we we can trim the process down to three weeks and the uh, in the final selection or management team over the course of a couple of days. Maybe we can take that six weeks to four weeks. That's that's some Something that we do, and, and you know, we can we can do that pretty effectively. Um, but it takes a lot of long hours and a lot of commitment from the buy in agreement with the buyer and seller to be on like, you know, hours and hours of meetings from 7 a.m. till you know 7 p.m. instead of spreading them out over the course of a, a couple of weeks, if that makes sense. So that's the first thing you can do to effectuate the, the timeline in a process that's really under compression. The next thing is the LOI. So. Well, I always agree that an LOI needs to be thoroughly reviewed and agreed to by both sides. About half of the time, a LOI is kicked back and forth and takes a week to, to trim up the LOI and get the terms right and redline it and people want to use attorneys. And so that uh, that's a process that we can sometimes shortchange too. It's not something you would prefer to do if you don't have to, but sometimes uh, I've seen clients decide to just ba basically send emails back and forth and say, okay, the LOI looks fine. You know, let's just move to a purchase agreement instead of negotiating a document that ultimately goes away. You know, the other thing is that you know sometimes for the sake of for this, you know, you know, you you certainly want to cull out all of the main deal points. If you miss those in the initial stages of a deal, I mean, they're going to come back to bite you, whether you're a buyer or a seller. But nonetheless, you know, abbreviated LOIs may be uh, a better idea if you can verbally go through the main deal points instead of entering attorneys in the middle uh, to negotiate a document and take a week negotiating a document that otherwise it's just going to go away once a purchase agreement is signed. So you might be able to pick up a couple of days there. I'm going to keep a little 
tally here. So we've saved two weeks. Let's say the typical process is six to six and a half months. I'm just going to throw a number out there, right? So we've saved two weeks in the in the uh, selection of a buyer. Maybe we've saved a half a week with this LOI idea. Next thing we do is we go into the purchase agreement. So the purchase agreement itself. So I, I guess I would say this. I have more and more conviction around this comment that I'm about to make uh, th than I ever have. If you choose the wrong attorney to help you, your deal is screwed if you're trying to be on a short timeline. We have one deal now. It's a big one. And I, can't, I won't name it where it is or what brand, it's, but it's a big one. And uh, the asset purchase agreement has been under negotiation for over 90 days. These things are supposed to take 30 days. And most of the reason for, and it probably is going to take another two or three weeks. So that this APA is going to take 100 to 110 days probably to complete. Dude, that is too long. Like if it's if it's going to take that that long, and people who are in the deal business know that that's a ridiculous timeline. It is obvious that you've got the wrong attorney. Now, what the problem is once you get into it, you can't really choose like change attorneys. It's very rare to see people do it because of the voluminous amount of work and negotiations that go into to agreeing. Uh, with these purchase agreements. But what it does mean is this. Let me tell you. If you are a buyer or seller, if and your attorney does not has not completed a dozen M&A transactions in the space where, you know, in the franchise space specifically and can't list them on a page for you and you're under a time pressure, don't hire them. Just don't hire them. I mean, you know, I don't make legal decisions, okay? So I got to caveat that, but but uh, you have to make your own decisions. But time and time again, if I look at a if I look at a like a deal board, like I have in our office here, kind of or a deal sheet shows thirty deals we're working on. You know, um, we we have a, a couple of third party attorneys. We don't we don't get paid for it. I mean, clients make their own decisions, but we have just referrals, people that we know in the business that do a lot of work specifically for M&A and franchise deals. And the 30 deals we've got, probably 20 of them have taken our advice, even when they have their own attorneys and have hired these third party attorneys, if that's all they do, the other 10 don't. Guess what? Of the 20 deals we got going, almost all of them are on track. Of the 10 deals that, that aren't that aren't uh, with uh, you know that are with the, the local attorney who might be the real estate attorney or might be the personal attorney of the seller or buyer, half of those deals or more have been delayed at least double, if not two and a half times, what the normal deal is during the asset purchase agreement phase. It is just a major problem, and I, I you know I have a personal attorney. I know we all have a personal attorney, so you know who we trust, who knows our family matters, who has maybe a trusts with our family, or has helped us with establishing our LLCs, or has helped us negotiate with our landlords, and all these other things that the that that, that they've done in personal matters, maybe helped us you know with our taxes too. Whatever it is, uh, we respect them and trust them for it. But but it's kind of like it's it, it's kind of like. Kudos to the to the Milwaukee Bucks for just winning the NBA Finals. You know, I'm a I was kind of a Suns fan because of Devin Booker, an old Kentucky player. My son and I love love Devin Booker, and they lost. But it's kind of like putting Devin Booker at center. You know what I mean? Devin Booker's a heck of a player. The guy can shoot threes. He's dynamic, electric, but he's like six foot five. And if you put him at center, he's going to be terrible, right? So it's the kind of the idea about putting a really good, a trusted attorney who is good for your general business into an M&A transaction that hasn't had experience doing franchise law. They will, they will wreck, they, in many cases, they will wreck the timeline. Even if they are specialized in M&A, but haven't the experience of working with a franchisor and working on a franchise transaction, it likely will add 
30 to 45 days to the process. So the next thing you can do is you can listen to your advisor, i.e. if you've hired unbridled, and go through that process of hiring a third-party attorney with experience closing franchise M&A transactions. That's critical. If you don't do that, your deal ain't gonna close in five or six months, except for a few instances. If you do that, you increase the likelihood that the APA process of negotiation lasts between 20 and 45 days, okay? If 20 and 45 days, okay, so how do we how do we spin that and make that faster? There's only limited things you can do, but you know, we can put everyone on notice for, you know, every, you know, like twice a week phone calls with the parties to try to speed it up and to try to initiate and facilitate business dis- business points getting negotiated and agreed to alongside the legal discussion. Because you know, typically speaking from observation, the legal discussion happens, right? People negotiate the the legal language, and then there's two or three business points that end up being what uh, what happens at the very end. And those business points can be typically brought forward sometimes, and they can shorten the process and maybe make this 45-day outside window a 30-day number. And if it's a 30-day number, then potentially we can uh, you know we can cut a week or two off of the process up to the point of APA. Uh, you know, mutually being signed by the various parties. Okay, so the next part in in trying to shorten the timeline of a purchase agreement when you're under pressure, and, and a, not just a purchase agreement, but a deal, is the third-party diligence that needs to happen. Now, typically in a deal, you know, if you've done deals here in the franchise space, sign a purchase agreement and then due diligence lasts somewhere between 30 and 60 days thereafter. Uh, 45 days is common, but that's not what everyone agrees to all the time. Depends on the size and the complexity of the deal. You know, during due diligence, uh, you, you know, one of the things that if it's a larger transaction, well, well, hold on. If whether it's big or small, you have to usually contend with leases, real estate diligence. You've got to get transfer approval from the franchisor, and then you've got to, um, you know, you got to think about financial diligence. For smaller deals, there's typically not a whole lot of financial diligence. It's typically just internal. The buyer looks at the financials, maybe asks for tax returns, whatever they're going to do, right, and get comfortable with the, ask for royalty sales from the franchisor. Um, You know, there may be reviewed financial statements from the CPA. Um, and then, you know, they're addressed in the asset purchase agreement, how, you know, the veracity of those documents, and then they move forward. But on the larger transactions and with these bigger groups, especially these groups that are so prevalent these days that have family office money or private equity money, their constituents, whether they be limited partners or whether they be the family that's funding these family office funds, right, they're going to want, in many cases, third-party, uh, you know, due diligence financially. So what this looks like is some sort of a, of uh, what's called a uh, you know quality of earnings study, where maybe a, a you know a specialty finance group, uh, typically a CPA, comes in for a fee. They come in and they comb through the trial balances and all the P and Ls and all the financial information, and then they you know, are looking to make sure there's no irregularities. And then if they don't find or whatever they find, they issue a letter that, you know, in most cases to the to the potential buyer, basically with some sort of guarantee that they haven't found or what they have found. And then the buyer uses that obviously to show their investors or their credit committee so that they feel comfortable 
you know, affirming the acquisition and the equity and the price and all these sort of things. So, some of the, so, so that's something that sometimes can be pushed forward a little bit. Potentially, you know, that that can take you know, sometimes as long as uh, you know thirty to forty-five days to go through. I've seen some of the quality of earnings last only three to four weeks. Some last two to three weeks. So, getting those things started sooner is a big deal. Getting the lease assignment started quickly is also a big deal because if any type of situation where you have to transfer fifteen or 20 or 30 leases, there are going to be 10 to 15% of them that are just arduous. It's always the way, that way. You've got Grandma Tilly who owns, she's a third generation landlord and it was passed down from her great grandfather to her father to whoever and she's now living in Toledo, Ohio and doesn't have a cell phone, right? So, or you have which even worse, you know, in most cases, you have the landlord of some big REIT that owns 7,000 properties out of San Francisco, and you're given some 1-800 number to try to get the lease assigned, right? And it just takes a long time with a lot of bureaucracy. So those are some of the things you definitely want to, uh, to, to jump in front of quickly to try to you know, get a week or two quicker on the timelines. Sometimes what we're seeing too on the real estate diligence, if there's real estate, you know, you might, you know, uh, and, and this is a case by case basis, not all buyers and sellers agree to this, but the process of ordering environmentals and surveys and uh, appraisals, you know, happens typically 30 day, you know, 30 days into due diligence, 15 days into due diligence, but after a purchase agreement is signed, when you're trying to curtail a process, Sometimes maybe you can, you know, come come up with a solution where maybe a buyer and seller share the cost of those of those uh, of those studies of those environmentals of those appraisals of those surveys and uh, front end them. You know, if the deal doesn't close, I, Mr. Seller, will help split the cost to defray the cost. You know, I don't know. There's whatever is agreed to between the parties. But the idea is you get those people and those boots on the ground working on those surveys and appraisals sooner than they otherwise would, especially when we're looking at a year end situation right where you know project forward like the busyness for us you know being M&A advisors obviously right now is very busy but trying to get these things closed I think we're all getting fearful that as we get into October and November just these these uh, people who inspect facilities or these people who are doing appraisals I mean they have to actually you know put on their shoes and you know drive to a location and take pictures of it and do you know and, and be there in person to do their work when they have so many deals that are dependent on near-end closings, those types of people and resources and services are going to be strained pretty dramatically, right? So those are the types of things that you want to try to bring forward as quickly as you can. Facility inspections is another one. Sometimes, you know, if it's a smaller deal or if it's a buyer who knows the seller, sometimes facility inspections just handle or handled um, in a multitude of different ways. You know, sometimes uh, it'll be, you know, the, the buyer will drive, do a casual drive of the stores and if it's a smaller deal and, and maybe bring up some issues, a pothole in the driveway or an AC unit that looks old and defrayed and try to, you know, use that, you know, kind of to, to, to talk about repairs that are needed. If it's a larger transaction, they may do a more formal process and have a third party inspection inspector come to the table to go and physically look at all the HVAC units, for example, and every one of the 150 units, and then come back with a report of the age and the condition of each HVAC unit in each location. And maybe there are two HVAC units in each of the 125 stores. That's 
250 HVAC units, right? And so, and you know, and, and, and the numbers, you know, get get to be a little bit larger. But but that takes a long time. If you have a large deal, think about having one firm that has maybe seven or eight people in their firm going to see 150 units and spending probably three or four hours at each location or, you know, whatever it would be, and then generating the report. So you want to get those things moved forward as quickly as possible too. You know, if, you, if, if you're in the, if you can kind of front end load the, uh, you know, and pull forward uh, and maybe get buyer and seller to agree to start spending money prior to an APA being signed on some of these things like financial due diligence, you know, especially the quality of earnings, or maybe with the appraisals, surveys, environmentals, or maybe with some of the inspections, you can typically shave a couple of more weeks off of the total timeline. So if we were saving two weeks in the in the in the sales process and you know maybe uh you know, maybe two to two and a half weeks. And then maybe if you get the right attorney harping on that again, uh, who has experience in franchise M&A and knows how to do these deals, and, and maybe that shaves, uh, you know, one to two weeks off of the process. Maybe front-end loading some of the diligence that I just described may get you another two weeks. I, I, I don't know. The other, the, you know, but, but this is kind of how we're thinking right now. And collectively now, if I'm adding all these darn times together, I'm getting like six to eight weeks, right? So now we're getting kind of some meaningful amount of, uh, of improvement in the overall time frame. Let's just call it six weeks, right? So the other thing that you can do that, that, that probably bears uh, thinking about some, you know, and this is a bigger topic, but the franchise. Azor obviously has the right of first refusal and then they, the, the transfer approval. And, you know, for those who are in this business pretty regularly, you know that most franchisors do not exercise the right of first refusal very often. Now, we probably do business in 10 to 15 brands, uh, you know, pretty regularly. And we have, I have personally in a 20-year career seen a right of first refusal um, exercised less than five times in maybe two or three brands total. So it's not something that happens a lot. And as you all know, we could talk about this for ad nauseum for hours probably, but the, the model has historically been in the last four or five years it's called asset light model. The franchisor wants to sell the as many assets and, and have as low uh, a percentage of corporate ownership as possible, usually in the 5% range, you know, to be able to test market, to be able to have, uh, you know, to, to be able to have a critical piece of operations and some credibility with the franchise, franchisees, but they don't want to have a big operation because the money is in the royalty stream and the higher multiple, the higher value of the company for the franchisors in the royalty stream, not in the company operations. But nonetheless, Going to the franchisor is always a is always something that uh, is different. So in some brands, the franchisor will render the right of first refusal and start their clock, whether it's 30, 45, or 60 days, based on a signed LOI. Now that's pretty good, especially if you're a buyer who's coming into a deal and you don't know the brand or you haven't been approved in the brand beforehand, right? So that's 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 interesting and, and, and something to note. But most brands want a signed APA beforehand. Uh, so. Is it possible in those brands to go to the franchise or and to plead the franchise or to start the uh, approval process and to start the right of first refusal process prior to getting the APA? Well, they probably won't do it, but maybe they'll tee the deal up. Maybe there are some things that can be done to squeeze a week or so in the process. The other thing is if you are a franchise 
If you were going to get into a franchise brand for the first time and you're a buyer, most of these brands, and this is another topic that I may talk about today actually later on, but maybe not. If not, listen next time. It's about what franchisors are demanding from, you know, or, or how they're looking for the approval process for, for new franchisees. They're obviously getting a little bit more um, you know, aggressive in the demands that they want. If you're a new franchisee, no longer is it, will we approve you or not? You know, there is that. But then after that, it's, if we approve you, will you sign a relation to what kind of agreement can we get out of you to, um, guarantee that you won't sell the assets for the, you know, not, not everyone's like this, but, but most franchisors want to extract a pound of flesh to get you to agree to development and remodeling schedules that may be really accelerated or pretty aggressive. And they also want to try to tie you into to not being able to sell the assets for a certain amount of years uh, after buying them. At least at least some of the franchise, franchisors are that way. And that, you know, some franchisors will call that a relationship agreement, which is kind of a term for an agreement where we're going to ask a whole lot of you in, 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 a, in, in, in exchange for your, uh, our agreement to let you buy these stores that you're trying to buy. So those are some of the, the things that uh, take a lot long time. Some of these relationship agreements with these new franchisees, they can, they can take a while. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. And you know, we've seen several transactions where the relationship agreement takes somewhere between 30 to 45 days in addition to the approval process just to get negotiated, depending on the depth and scope of it. There are a couple of law firms that are out there that we know who actually specialize in, in, in negotiating these relationship agreements. So they're pretty healthy documents. And of course, since they involve these family offices and private equity groups and the general partner and limited partners and they and they define that relationship and the financial commitment that must be made to the brand uh, it, it is a it is a very important document for these groups the point is you got to get out in front of it and get out in front of it quickly um, a good advisor is going to is going to point that out to you and a good advisor is also going to you know give you some thoughts about the conditions under which the relationship agreement typically is invoked and and uh, because what you don't want to do is be 30 30, 60 days into a transaction, working on a purchase agreement with the seller, only to find out 30 days later that the brand that you're going to try to buy these stores in is going to require something that, that your charter with your investors just won't allow, or they'll be asking for remodel requirements that you just physically will not ever agree to. It is obviously true in, mo in many cases that the, the relationship agreement is negotiated. The development requirements, the the uh, you know the the remodeling requirements, and, and uh, you know and, and all of these things, depending on the brand, depending on the time, depending on you know just kind of the leadership and the brand and the franchisee who's who's approaching the matter. So this is this is um, this is all stuff that takes time to unfold, and it can't be viewed as anymore as something that is at the end of the transaction. I think historically, I mean, I've been. I don't know, doing this a while, right? So when I first started doing M&A, um, especially with the Young Brands franchisees, it was kind of an afterthought, the, fra the franchise or approval process. You kind of worked almost linearly, right? You, you found yourself, if you're a seller, you found yourself a buyer, you negotiated the price, you signed an LOI, you signed an APA. Once you got the APA signed, you threw it into corporate. That was really the first time you gave them a buzz, you know, and you, and you let them know that there's going to be a possible transfer happening and you bring in a buyer for this business. And then you're working on the, you know, then you're finalizing your financing and you're working on your leases. That's kind of the way it used to be. But it doesn't happen linearly like this anymore because the franchisor over the years has kind of gotten, has kind of tightened like a, like a python, right? A constrictor. Um, and, and, and they, they want more control. Uh, they, they certainly want new unit development. 
their ask has has uh, has has started ramping up again post COVID. Generally speaking, across all the brands I see, you know, for probably a year when COVID happened, all the development ask kind of sort of stopped and went on pause because. As everyone knows, it's difficult to get money. No one's going to be building new units, uh, you, you know, when when there's a you know middle of a pandemic and you can't get people to do it. But but now that that you know kind of um, we're starting to see the franchisors kind of beat the drum. They're beating the drum. They want the the requirements. They're noticing both in their own P and Ls, but also in the franchise royalties they're getting paid and the phone calls and all the work that they're doing with the franchisees. That the franchisees have money. They have the PPP loan money. Their sales and EBITDA, especially on the QSR side, are really high right now. And so the franchisors who are incentivized for new development, what do you think they're going to do when they know all that information? Right? They're going to be pushing everybody to build more units. And I think you know as a um, you know, as a condition of, of, of transfer, it's going to become a, a bigger issue and they're taking a heavier hand. And so here's where I'm going to go ahead and keep talking about, about the franchisors and several brands that we've been working on in several deals over the last 30 days, 20 days, maybe 30 days, two brands I can, I can think of particularly, I won't name them. Um, they had a franchisor who for the first time I've seen in, in a, many, many years had, had declined a franchisee to buy a business even when the buying franchisee was well capitalized and a great operator and approved in the system um, because they didn't want uh, stores to be bought non-contiguous from where the current franchisee's operations are. So that's something across now several brands that you have to consider. Um, it's a question to ask your advisor, right? Like, you know, if I'm a buyer and I own Jimmy John's in, you know, Dallas, is Jimmy John's going to allow me to buy Jimmy John's restaurants in Columbus, Ohio? And, you know, who, you know, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question particularly, but many brands are going to put restrictions if you're an existing franchisee on where you can acquire, and and some will base base it based on your your operation scores, obviously, and your growth approval status, your financial status, but increasingly, where do you currently operate stores? And where are you proposing to buy more stores? And it's part of the equation of not wanting to have franchisees all over the place. And I think part of it gets back down to, number one, they think it's protecting the brand, the franchisors do. But number two, I think that's a formula for them for development, you know, right? So they want to bring in new franchisees or people who are nearby that they feel like can develop more stores more aggressively. So that's that's going to be um, what I've, I've noticed. And, and also I've noticed that uh, franchisors are, are just not as uh, friendly anymore to to, to just to uh, um, to, to to buyers, even well qualified buyers, you know, if, if who aren't in the system, working on a deal right now where you know there might be five buyers who've come to the table on a big deal, and none of them are franchisees in an existing brand. Um, you know, we know now to call the franchisor, and oh, oh, guess what? The franchisor had a really healthy opinion on 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 several of these of these potential buyers, right? So, so um, they the franchisor is really exercising more authority and control. I go back to the constrictor or the python analogy, <laughs> and I used to. My son's a tennis player, and so I would say you could either beat two. You could beat a. Ten, you know, you could beat your opponent in tennis one of two ways. You can beat him one way by by striking like a cobra. You know what I mean? That would be like like pounding the forehand. You know, you know, and just hitting winners on people, right? Or to be real aggressive, and then you know our good friend. You know, he's not our good friend, but but you know Novak Djokovic, who just won his twenty first Grand Slam championship. Like he beats people typically 
quickly by squeezing them like a python, right? Constricting, returning the ball over and over and over again, you know, hitting it to your backhand a hundred times in a row until you falter and you and you make a mistake. So, you know, uh, I think the I think the methodology here is that you're seeing more franchisors with a little bit of uh, constricting going on, wanting more control, and uh, coming out of this COVID circumstance with more control. Uh, sounds similar to our government, doesn't it? Oh, by the way, so on to another topic. But uh, so so those are you know, and I think that's that's finally kind of how you th- think about reducing the time frame to get a deal done when you only have four to five months and you usually take six or six and a half. It is true now that we're starting to hear rumblings that some franchisors are saying, hey, if you don't get your deal into us by X amount of date, we're not going to be able to you know, guarantee that it'll close by 2021. So they're feeling the pressure too. You all know too, in the age of corporate restructuring and downsizing and GNA reductions, these franchisors don't have much staff. And usually, you know, you're dealing with middle managers who are getting paid, you know, $125,000 a year salary who are standing in front of, you know, $200 million deals. So it's kind of a weird kind of circumstance, isn't it? You know, wouldn't you think you'd put more GNA and more attention and bigger and better resources against such big deals uh, when they're so important to your, to your system? But that's the way it's kind of staffed these days. And so you've got to kind of, it's almost like working through aides at a, at a politician's office, not the politician himself or herself. So those are kind of the, the, the things you have to think about. Um, overall, I do think we're going to see some some theatrics here in Q4. I don't know what's going to happen as we get towards the end of the year, and we have like a hundred deals in the franchise M and A world that have to happen in the final three weeks of the year. So, you know, strap on your your boots and get ready. I think it'll be an interesting you know end to the end of the end of the year for sure. A couple other things I kind of uh, you know would just just point out as we is a finish up here. One would be, you know, I've heard a couple of comments that are interesting. One one comment I've heard recently you know, for buyers, uh, you know, is that we are addicted to depreciation. And that's why we're continuing to acquire. Isn't that interesting? So these are the kind of first and second generation self-made franchisees that are growing. These are guys that are probably different, a lot different than the family offices. But, um, you know, depreciation is a beautiful thing for people who own businesses. And, uh, and that uh, and, and being able to depreciate goodwill and FF&E and leasehold improvements and even real estate to a, to a lesser extent uh, is a powerful reason why people who are creating multi-generational family-owned businesses want to continue to buy especially with a lot of debt and especially uh, when interest rates are really low. So I thought, you know, there's a, what is it, who is it, Robert Palmer? Remember that song, man, in the 80s? Was it in the 80s, maybe? Yeah, I might as well face it that I'm addicted to love. You remember that song? Uh, it's, but, the, but it should be addicted to depreciation, right? Might as well face it, I'm addicted to depreciation. Uh, maybe that's a good t-shirt. So that's something to be thinking about. I do think we're going to start seeing a casual dining resurgence. So this is just a total, I just, I'm, I've got like a yellow pad here of five or six things I wanted to chat about. So the rest of it's going to be fairly short, but uh, casual dining is starting to see a little bit of resurgence. I don't think we have any really robust lenders who are raising their hands yet and saying, ooh, 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 me, I'm willing to finance casual dining deals. I want to go out and, you know, finance a refinance an Applebee's deal of 150 units. No, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there, there's a lot of that just yet, but, um, but I do think the performance in casual dining has obviously shown some big improvements. A lot of casual diners who I know who I'm chatting with are starting to see their sales that are, uh, you know, 
in excess of 2019 levels. I think the the bar for casual dining uh, that I, that I'm sure lenders and advisors and investors all alike and franchisors are all looking at are, you know, in many casual dining brands in 2016, 17, 18, and 19, the trends weren't great, were they? Right? You know, they were really taking a hit. And so, um, what do the trends look like coming out of COVID? If we were exempt the COVID blip and all the bad stuff that happened to dine in restaurants during that time, you know, what's going to happen here in the next three to six months in casual dining? I mean, do we have any conviction or any data that's going to show us that the trends are going to be reversed and actually there's going to be a little bit of a step change and people are going to go back to casual dining in a big way? I don't know. I think there's opinions all over the board. I was just talking with a dear friend of mine who's a big franchisee uh, the other day, and he says, hey, maybe this Thanksgiving and this Christmas, you're going to see more people piling into oh, Charlie's, Applebee's, and Chili's than you've ever seen before. And I can understand that sentiment, right? Um, it, may, it, may be a, it, it may be true. Does that create a long-term trend? Like anything else with QSR or any other brand that we saw during COVID, you then have an opportunity to get a new client or a new customer or a lapsed customer in the door and wow them with your service and with your food. And if you do that, maybe it can create a long-term you know, growth in business and a change in the in the way it's been, you know, which has been a slow decline over the last four or five years. So watch out for the casual dining resurgence and see how that may, uh, you know, translate to more deal flow in 2022. We'll see. We'll see. Um, what's going to happen to sales and margins as dining rooms reopen? That's kind of starting to happen right now. A lot of a lot of P and Ls have been looking really good because there haven't been, you know, uh, there hasn't been much labor spent inside the dining room recently, and so it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't? It. You know, a lot of the, you know, I wonder what the sales will do. I mean, you would suspect that when you open your dining rooms, you're going to be getting higher sales. How much higher sales? How many people are going to be coming back to a QSR dining room that previously for the last year and a half have just basically gotten accustomed to only eating QSR through the drive-thru or delivery? That's a question. How much how much sales will, will, will be new in the dining room or will it shift away from the, from the drive-thru and delivery? That remains to be seen. And then what's going to happen to profitability? Obviously, you've got to have more people staffed uh, to to clean the dining rooms and to and to keep them fresh and ready and everything good to go for the employees. I mean, pardon me for the customers. So, I mean, I think we're going to have a perspective on that in the next couple of periods as we look at EBITDA here and, and we look at sales. Keep keep uh, keep an eye on that. I'll talk about that probably as we get into Q3 and Q4. Um, I will say that we have seen that some sellers are a little bit, this is another point, some sellers are a little bit greedy. I would remind those of you who listen to this, if you are a seller, remember that if you're in now in, in some businesses now, I, I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that if you were a fitness franchisee and you're listening to this, you had a really rough go in COVID. If you're a casual dining franchisee, you had a really rough go. You know, if you were, I mean, a lot of these are health and beauty, you know, a franchisee, you had a really rough go and you're just getting back. You're just, you're, you're probably, you deferred a lot of, you know, rent payments. You probably didn't pay the franchisor their full royalty. You probably, you know, the bank has probably not been paid fully over that time period. Um, and so, so you've, you've hurt, you've been hurting and, and now you're getting back to a point where you're, you know, you're getting, finally getting cash flow in your doors, hopefully. So good for you guys. So this doesn't, this doesn't apply to you as much as it does the QSR operators we see regularly who are forgetting, I think, that their business may be up 20 to 25% or whatever it is in value, uh, you know, over the last 18 months. And they were happy uh, of the value of their business back in 2019. Uh, so in 2021, be happy of the value of your business because it's higher than what you ever could have expected, right? 
And so, uh, you know, sometimes greed is a, is a nasty little thing. It's a nasty, was it five letter word? G R E E D. Yeah. It's a, it's a nasty little thing, nasty little five letter word. So, uh, let's not forget where we come from. You know what I mean? It's like a good old country boy forgetting his roots and, you know, and, and, and kind of hating on his hometown, right? Let's not forget where we came from. If you're in a position where you have a business, that's all of a sudden more attractive than it used to be. Uh, man, don't, 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 don't forget and also be grateful where you are. You know, don't be greedy. So that's a, that's, that's, that's a, I hope people hear that. I know this is going to be at the end of the presentation or, you know, today's, today's podcast, but I hope people hear that. I may have to start repeating that every, every time. Um, and then the last thing is, let's just keep an eye on the workers coming back, man. I think the labor problem hopefully will continue to, uh, the word on the street is it's, it's starting to, to get a little better out there, which I think is fantastic uh, for, you know, people coming back to work as the unemployment benefits are kind of getting cut off, especially in the southern states over the early part of the summer. I hear some of uh, my friends who are operating big franchise businesses down south are starting to say that they have less positions to fill and more people applying now. Which, duh, when the money is cut off, of course people go back to work. But I think it's a good sign. And hopefully we'll see, we'll see the uh, labor market start to moderate here as we push into the end of Q2, Q3 area. And uh, I hope that means good things for everybody, workers and, and franchisees, employers, employees, everybody alike. Um, to, you know, we, we want this thing to get back to normal uh, for everybody involved. So I appreciate you guys listening uh, today and uh, look forward to, to talking with you soon. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.